it's, it's very magical to have something that you thought of and come to light. I'll take it the next step in, in founding a company. You have this idea that is not out there. You, you bring it to life and then you take it to the, the next level is you then have other people who also see the magic there and who want to join you making that magic. So that's been something that's really, really compelling. And my next level of growth and learning has been, how do you take that design and creativity to a whole company? How do you build a culture? How do you find people who believe in what you were believing in and push for it as hard, if not harder than what you push for to start with? My guest today is Danny Morrow. Danny is a co-founder and chief innovation officer for Extend Payments. In this episode, he shares his journey from initially playing the role of CTO, transitioning to his current role as chief innovation officer, and he talks about building a team from scratch, developing a product and improving and innovating. Danny sheds some light on the process of their success from starting in a conference room with just three people to processing billions in transaction volume. The final takeaway from the show is how Danny and his team maintain humility in the face of success, which is a huge challenge for a lot of successful startup CEOs and founders. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I have. Now let's get on to the show. Welcome to The Way of Product, a podcast designed for creative technologists who love to explore, design, and build things that are useful and desirable. Did you know that the average tenure of a product executive is just two years? Two years! This is because often they struggle to make meaningful impact with their teams. I'm your host, Caden Damiano. I'm a product designer who doesn't pin my value to my job description and isn't afraid to go outside my job requirements to make something successful. I care more about the product development process. In short, I see myself as more of a creative technologist that uses technology as a liberal art to make great products. Forget about roles, operating models, and best practices for at least one hour today. And let's focus on the groups of individuals who live for this game and spend their free time improving and honing their abilities to deliver more value to the market. This podcast isn't for you. If you rigidly adhere to frameworks, weaponize job titles, or see no value in interpersonal skills, there's plenty of other podcasts that talk about that stuff. But if you're someone who wants to feel confident in your abilities, enjoy productive collaborations with stakeholders, and find satisfaction in the work you believe in, then this is where you need to be. If this resonates with you, hit that subscribe button and imagine waking up every morning feeling excited to do work you love and being paid well for it. This is what The Way of Product can help you achieve. Thank you for listening. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Super excited to be on Big Chat. Can you briefly introduce yourself to listener and we'll get started? Yeah, for sure. So I am one of the co-founders. I'm the actually initial CTO of Extend, just recently moving into the role of chief innovation officer, where I can, um, you really address my two loves, both product and technology. Um, and so Extend is a platform that helps thousands of small and medium-sized businesses manage their spend leveraging the power of virtual credit cards using the actual card that they already have so rather than having to go to a new bank to get new functionality extend is a partner to banks we offer them technology so they can offer a better experience to their end users you mentioned that a chief innovation officer combines uh, product and technology what does the role look like why move from like cto to chief innovation officer 
it's certainly something my entire career that I've always bridged across. So I, um, I studied product design in college, but that was much more of a physical industrial design approach, but really thinking about human centric design, all the things that we talk about design thinking today, we were studying those many years ago. And, and I, I graduated and it was the original dot-com boom. And I decided I want to be a designer and the internet seemed pretty cool. And so I jumped into that and was always designing sites and products that we didn't really call them that back then um, with a humor, human centric, user centric design point of view. And that was my career for some time. And then I took the leap into focusing more on technology and building digital products, digital experiences. And I actually worked for myself for 13 years prior to founding Extend um, as a consultant here in New York, um, building all sorts of platforms for consumers, for luxury goods, brands, et cetera. Always again, though, from that technology, thinking about product, thinking about usability. And when we launched Extend, oh, you need someone who can build things. So that was me. And so I grew that team. We're now 85 people. I grew that team from the ground up. I wrote all the initial lines of code, brought on folks I knew, hired people so that we could have an engineering team that was still product centric. And that's always been the key to me. Everyone has to be thinking about product. Everyone has to think about the end user all the time. And so this move into this new role where it's less about managing the day-to-day -day workings of an engineering team, but really focusing on what innovation can we bring to our bank partners? What innovations can we bring to the market as a whole, to our network issuing partners, to our issuing processor partners, to our end users? That's really where our, my sweet spot is. And you can't do one without the other. You can't do one without the design. You can't think about someone's using things. And the technology needs to enable that. And all those pieces need to be working together in harmony. And it's really my role at the company to be sitting at the intersection. That's where my career has led me. So it's a good sweet spot for me. The last uh, chief innovation officer I met, he was a founder as well. So I wonder if it's like kind of the natural progression of a product-minded, creative technologist type founder that still wants to be in the game, but needs to be able to blend the different disciplines and coordinate that. Um, what your story sounds like is James Dyson's story and a lot of, a lot of listeners, longtime listeners of the show should know that I am a huge fanboy. I have both of his biographies. Like this guy's so prolific. He peaked in like the late nineties and had a biography, an autobiography. And then he peaked again with all his work on developing product engineering talent and did another biography, but that was his whole thing where he's like, he started out as a product designer, mostly focused on industrial design, but he had a, an urge to like impact the technology that he was designing as well. And so he, in his words, moonlighted as an engineer, but he's, once you have the idea, it only takes six months to learn the technology. I think for you, like, well, when did that moment happen in your product design career where you felt like this urge to get more involved? in the actual implementation of the tech stack and the coding and everything like that, because um, kind of come to that conclusion as well, um, especially heavily influenced by James Dyson. And I also see it as like this natural progression for very innovation-minded designers. Do you rem remember that moment and like what caused you to like get out of the craft of the actual like industrial design and getting into the actual tech side of it? Yeah, I don't know if there's a specific moment. I always 
did technology in my career. I actually learned computer programming when I was in middle school. And so learned logo, <laughs> it was my initial foray as a 12 year old into uh, computing logic. I actually took very few ES classes um, in college because I really was very interested in thinking about how do people use things and that felt very removed. And so really my product design major as a mixture of mechanical engineering and art really scratched my kind of creative and nerd side at the same time. And, and so that was very rewarding. But when I went into designing sites, I've always followed my heart of, I want to know, I don't know if I have the experience to do it, but it's passion to me. Let me learn. Let me take that challenge. It inspires me. So I know I didn't have an art degree, but I decided to be a designer. And then I got to the internet and back then, of course, front end presentation layer was really all rendered on the back end. There was very little interactivity. And so actually what I picked up on was flash, which is a really new technology back then uh, and come from director and Metromedia. And that was a way to actually do interactivity on the front end that interests me. And then figuring out, okay, and how could I make that data-driven? Because I didn't want to make one-off things that couldn't be reused. And the sites that we were building were data-driven sites. So how could I make this interactivity on a data-driven site? No one knew that technology, so I had to learn it and figure it out. And there were a bunch of us where I was working who were learning to figure that technology out and how could it play into the whole web. And then as the web grew, technology grew, you can make things more interactive. Steve Jobs stood on stage and held up an iPhone and suddenly there was no more flash work. Um, and nobody was like really, really cool because you could do magic of putting technology interactivity on a computer in someone's pocket. And that really felt like you were doing some kind of sorcery, right? Despite, and I'll say, even knowing now how to build iOS apps, I spent a long period of time building mobile apps in my career. Still seems like magic to me, different type of magic than building something for the web. And I think it's because the immediacy of your, it completely blurs the line between the technology and the product. And so that was always interested in me. It was not a new algorithm. It wasn't this or that. It was really about, can I make something that gave joy to someone using a product or solved a problem using a product? And so it was a natural, I don't think there's one to your question. It was not one aha moment of, oh, now I realize I need to do this in order to get to here. It was a natural progression. Um, it was me naturally trying to keep learning, doing something I didn't know how to do. I'll say the first iOS project I took, one of my longtime clients asked me, could I build it? I had not the first idea about how to code Objective-C, but that was going to be my mission. And so I learned it and built a fantastic product from that. And so that's always my journey along the way. And that's how we came to found Extend. We had never founded a company. It just seemed like an opportunity that was going to be product-driven. That was going to have some cool technology that had some things I didn't know about. Let's jump in and figure that out. So that's, I think it's that itch that has gotten me to where I am today. Yeah, I'm just gonna go back like saying, it's like, hey, once you have the idea, you can learn the tech, right? Once you've realized like, oh, this is the intended like experience I wanna make. Okay, what technology stacks do we have that could enable this and then go learn it? So for me, it's taking courses on React because that's like the best way to make design systems right now because it matches with design tools and uh, you know it, it just never gets old when you see something you imagined like several months ago like acting code in the qa environment it just never gets yeah, it's old certainly very, it's, it's very magical to have something that you thought of and come to light i'll take it the next step in, in founding a company you have this idea that is not out there you bring it to life 
and then you take it to the, the next level is you then have other people who also see the magic there and who want to join you making that magic. So that's been something that's really, really compelling. And my next level of growth and learning has been, how do you take that design and creativity to a whole company? How do you build a culture? How do you find people who believe in what you were believing in and push for it as hard, if not harder than what you push for to start with? So there's, there, there's stops along the way that, that make that all compelling and rewarding. It has to be right. I think we all get into creative, um, careers because that's who we are. It excites us to build new things and excites us to learn new things, do things that we haven't done before, right? Not, not just keep doing the same repetitive tasks, but we, we want to figure out something new. We want to learn and grow. And so this whole, my whole career and this whole journey as a co-founder has really been, you know, scratching that itch the whole way. I used to be really frustrated earlier in my career when someone would say, oh, work your magic, right? Or, hey, UX this or design this. Um, there's definitely the zeitgeist of that, like creative people, especially like the, like one of the disciplines I explored was a film. You see a Christopher Nolan or someone that continuously is like a heavy hitter. Everything they make resonates with people. That's it's magic. And it used to frustrate me a lot. But I think what your comment just sparked is that I think there's an innate human need to want to have the magic. Like they don't want to know how it happened. They just want the result. And it just sounds like even like employees that like join companies, they don't want to know about your, like your amazing strategy and all the work and rigor you put into figuring out what the right problem is to solve. Like they just want to like, Hey, this product is magical. I want to work on it. And that's all they care about. That's something like you've noticed in your career. Um, that it's less about like talking about and your work and more about just showing the results. Oh yeah. I see your point. I'm not sure, but I think who we hunted for and who we've tried to attract these companies, people who can really believe in all those pieces and that curiosity. So yeah, the mm -hmm. piece to say, I want to be part of something that's magical. I want to be part of something that's growing quickly and it has that excitement. That's certainly always part of why anyone would join a successful startup, right? It, 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 there is that kind of. That mentality of, oh, this is going somewhere. I'm going to be part of this journey. That's very exciting. But I think who we've looked for are folks who are curious, who actually do want to look behind the curtain and understand what makes this tick. These people who are excited to take things apart, put them back together again. And that's what really gets them going. And to me, that's creativity just under a different name. And, mm -hmm. and that's, and it's not limited to someone who's going to be doing beautiful layouts or doing wonderful um, process flows or, or user stories, right? An engineer should be thinking about that. A salesperson should be thinking about it. all the people at Extend are always thinking creatively, how, how can I push this? And, and they need to because otherwise they're bored. And so I, I think the people that we found to join us and the people that we hunt to and court, so if they do come join us, really have to have that constant need for growth and learning and creativity. But again, because my background is not that you're a designer, do your magic, you're the creative one, but everyone else is just the, the rote work that obviously that's ridiculous. Like you should bleed beyond all those lines and everyone should have the opportunity to do their thinking and their creativity and bring something new to the table. I should call this podcast, how to be a wizard. <laughs> I mean, that would be pretty right. And it, I, what I think is interesting to me, if you call it that way, right, how to be a wizard, it sounds like it's something that you 
that is unknowable. It's unlearnable. It, to, to me, a wizard is not something, you either are a wizard or you, Harry Potter doesn't become a wizard. He's like, he's a wizard straight away. Um, that's not how I view any of this. And that's certainly not what I was taught. It's certainly not what I've experienced in my career. It's like, if you choose to become a wizard, you can, you have to work mm -hmm. it. Just, it's not going to drop in your lap, but it is all learnable. It's all practicable. It's just about flexing those muscles enough until you, it becomes second nature. Yeah, like when I, I graduated school, I went to a very design theory type of design program where it was more focused on framing the problem and cognitive psychology and very X heavy. And I was not great at like layout and visual design. So I just never, I think that's what people believe, you know, like the most popular epics, like storytelling, like, oh, Jedi's like they're born with it. And that's. They have, they're sensitive to the force and yeah, wizards, they're just like magic sensitive, right? In the Harry Potter universe. And so we just assume like people just have innate talent, right? And innate inclination for like, discipline. And, uh, what I, yeah, what I learned uh, really quickly was that you, yeah, that don't confuse the discipline with the individual, right? It's just a discipline and, um, Tiger Woods was in a high chair watching his dad hit golf balls when he was a baby. He just had more time. His 10,000 hours would just move sooner and and Mozart's dad was a music professor teacher so he was learning music theory in the crib and so he wasn't just innately talented he just had more time on task and intentional practice and I hired a coach spent some money during 2020 and after six months it was like oh I, I actually this isn't magic this is a craft and if you spend the time practicing uh, it turns out and also it turns out if you're if you are good at something it's more enjoyable Right. And then to other people, it looks effortless. But yeah, it's like, I think that's magic just seems innate, but I totally resonate with that. That if you want to take the time, just take six months, practice, and you could do it too. Yeah. I think people are always worried about doing something they don't know how to do. But if it's going to go give it a shot, and to your point, you just have to put in that time, put in that work. I completely agree with that. I also, I, I'm, never been the best visual designer. I think people think, oh, a designer's job is just make it pretty, make it look mm -hmm. That's never been my approach to design. I've always hung on to that Steve Jobs quote about design. It's not how it looks, but how it works. How it looks plays in part of that, but that's not the only piece of that. And really listening thoughtfully to and thinking thoughtfully about what your users want, what they maybe want and don't know how to verbalize what they're asking for, but just not presuming that you are the smartest or the be all end all of knowing what these things are, but really turning to your user to discover what they're asking for or what they're saying without asking for. That's really where I've seen success. And it's the same thing that is practice with empathy. That's practice with psychology of practicing, listening to people, which is another, that is also creative designs. So all these things come together and it's just about how do you use them? You don't presume that your task is only this task, you presume that your task, you know, that you cover the whole thing and you're just going to add your creative input where it's going to be value. I'm really pushing the metaphors now, but I've always, I've come okay. to the conclusion Let's that go most design, yeah, most, mo most, everyone thinks that like a designer is, and I think engineers are treated the same way, right? We're, we're asked to like t-shirt size, like a bulleted list from a product manager. And it's just like, you're an engineer, like you should know what the effort is and engineers like don't have any requirements. So like all these estimates are very like conservative, right? We don't have designs yet. How are we possibly going to estimate this? 
And so we're treated like we should just have all the answers, like should be able to give recommendations. But I think we're more tailors, right? Like when you, when a tailor custom cuts you a suit, they measure your inseam and your waist and all the different measurements to make the perfect cut of like fabric to make the suit. I feel like a designer is more of a tailor. Interesting. And so they are reacting to the, what they're being put in front of them and then adjusting along the way, the agile process of Taylor. Yeah. Is what you're implying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when I, when I got married, my dad gifted me a custom suit. And so the, the tailor, he's measuring me but at the same time. He's like talking about what's your goal with this suit? How do you want to feel? What's like the style? Like that, what's like, mm -hmm. what, what's the, what do you want to communicate? Right. It's like this expert that, um, is using pretty well-established patterns. Yeah, that's definitely how I feel. I don't know if it, it's distinctive to Agile, right? Because I think James Dyson doesn't do Agile. He does like waterfall to the max. Very strong sure. opinions. Okay. But they make, they make stuff that people like. And yeah, that's just what I thought uh, when you were mentioning your job is to understand like their hidden desires and trying to like elicit like what they want rather than, oh, I, I know all the principles of design and I know all the cognitive psychology. We have a persona that like an archetype that we could base our designs off of. We know what to do, but it's rather actually establish like a level of tact with the problem. Yeah, it, it's definitely a two-way street there. And I think what's interesting actually, what made me think of what you said when you said Taylor is the people we look to bring on our team, I think of them all as craftspeople, right? They take pride in their work. And they want to deliver that something that's great. You know, they think that their work reflects on themselves. So how they deliver their end product is a reflection of themselves. Is a better way to say that. And so to that end, you pick people, you know, who are curious, pick people who want to do, learn new things, give them a challenging problem. And you know that they're going to want to deliver something they're excited. Kind of, they're kind of almost guaranteed that you're going to have, in your example, a good suit, in our example, a good product, because we given people this opportunity to do what they enjoy, do it well, and also keep learning. And so I think that has been what something that has been successful for us as a company is to really keep pushing in that direction. How can we continually feed the curiosity and intellect of the people that we brought on the team? Right. So can you walk me through the story of how you decided to start extend? Yeah, for sure. So as I mentioned, I had been working as a, at a consultancy here in New York city for 13 years prior to extend and extend has been around for at this point, nearly seven years from today. Um, and so prior to that, I was a consultant building all sorts of digital things. And uh, the CEO is someone I've known well for a good period of time. We're, we're good friends. And he was previously at American express and had been in a bit of an expert in the digital B2B card payment. And when he was leaving American Express uh, for family reasons, we were talking about what can we do next? And I thought, I don't know, but working for myself, that's been the best choice I've ever made. So let's figure out how you can do that too. And so we put our heads together and I think there were some ideas floating around about what could you use virtual cards for? And traditionally virtual cards had been used for more in an enterprise business context. They're not new technology and pretty much every bank had an offering to enterprise clients. But they weren't available to small businesses. They weren't available to medium-sized businesses because they took too long to implement. Meaning that a bank 
could onboard a new corporate customer, maybe two or three a month at most, because they're very time consuming and there's all sorts of processes that have to happen at the bank. There's all sorts of technology that need to be integrated. And it just, so if you launched with 40 or 50 companies a year, the bank was looking great. And as a result, then they will, this is an expensive proposition. We need to make sure that we pick winners, which is never a good solution for finding innovation, right? They have to be, know the outcome before they go in. And so they would pick only the biggest companies in order to onboard them for virtual cards. Um, and so that meant small businesses, medium-sized businesses, they were just left out because they couldn't guarantee to spend enough money to make it worth the bank's time. And we put our heads together and said, what happens if we actually enabled you to send virtual cards from the existing card that you had? That was one of the big friction points. The onboarding into a virtual card program was very small. What we've learned really is that in FinTech, onboarding is half the magic. How can you make people just be able to pick up your product, they hear about it, they try it out, it works. That's really a way to, to run. And so the two of us figured, okay, he has great relationships in the B2B spend space. I know how to build a product. Now let's put peanut butter and chocolate together and see what magic happens. As it would happen, our third partner, our third co-founder was also leaving Amex at the time and Amex gave them outplacement services. And he was sitting in the office right next door and would stick his head in every now and then. And my, our CEO knew him from Amex and he would say, what are you guys working on? Hey, that sounds pretty interesting. And one thing led to another, he's like, no, what, what if I'm going to come along for this journey? And what was really powerful is the three of us, despite having never done a true startup, we had a huge amount of business experience and that business experience did not necessarily overlap. So we gave the three of us had a huge amount of coverage in terms of what knowledge we brought to the table and our, what experience we brought to the table. And that gave us all the confidence to convince ourselves, to convince our families that we're going to go on this crazy journey. And so that, that seven years ago. And then we had to go out and convince another couple of banks like, hey, by the way, we're just three guys in an office. Do you trust us? Because B2B is all about trust. It's all about relationship, right? It's not like we plaster the subway with a bunch of ads and hope that if we spend $50 or $100 per customer, we can acquire them. And our customers are banks. And so they have to trust that the technology we're bringing is solid, that they want to use our product, that we're going to be around in six months or a year or five years. If they want to introduce their customers to us, we have to be you know, we had to have our ducks in a row. And so that's how that process came along. It's just been relationships. It's about the three of us doing all the pieces. And then as, as we grew and saw that it was really going to be an opportunity, we raised some funds and then we could start hiring people that we knew and trusted to really grow the team. And that's how we got to all these years later, 85 people and a really successful product, strong product market fit, a large number of banks that are using our product, large number of end users at those banks using our product and continuing to grow. It's amazing for me, looking back, it's not, you hope that it's going to work out successfully that way, but you really, I'm very much a pragmatist, very realist. You, you know how many startups fail. You know how tricky it is to get the work that it's going to take. And so everyone looks smart in, in hindsight, but it's, it's amazing to think back how we got to here. Yeah, I forgot where I read it, but there was, maybe I think it was one of, the, one of those like famous like PDF letters on startup success it might have been like andrea mark andreason or something like that but it talked about founder market fit or i guess founder problem fit do you attribute a lot of your success and that was like the gist of like your story do you attribute a lot of your success to 
the backgrounds of the founders of Extend. Like you didn't just find a problem. Like it's really easy to just find a problem and be like, oh, let's go solve it. it this is a problem that you're acutely aware of the pain points, or at least one of your, your co-founders is. And you're, all, you're also like passionate about solving it because you've experienced the pain, right? Yep. And I think that's true. I think we came to this as, to your point before, we've already done our 10,000 hours, right? So we brought enough knowledge to the table to really understand the problem space. We also brought enough experience that we can go partner with the people we need to partner with, right? We're a B2B to B company, right? We have to partner with banks before we can get to our end corporate. That's, that's our go-to-market and we build products for banks. A, a bank is a big slow-moving beast that has lots of Lots of gears inside of it. We need to understand how that worked. And um, yeah, I'm here I'm using the Royal We, having frankly never worked in payments or cards before founding extent. And so that was where my two other partners could lean in. I had already built successful digital products. So I could know, yeah, I have full confidence. I know how to do this. Point me in the right direction. We'll build this. Right. So this was not, there was not a learning curve there. But I mentioned to you before, I would get bored if there's not a learning curve. I think most people get bored. You can't be creative with them. And so for me, the excitement was, how can I learn the card industry? How can I understand how it works today? How it could be different? How could I bring my years of experience to bear on things? I'm new to this world. What looks like things I'm familiar with? What does not, what patterns are just off to me? Do we talk in engineering about code smelling? What just doesn't seem right? And why is it different here? We've solved certain problems with technology, with design in other areas, a different way. Why would that not be true here for payments or for cards? And so bringing that experience to bear has been tremendously important in our success across the board, at least bootstrapping and getting the company running. And then at a certain point, it's about judgment. Who do you bring on? Who's going to help take that mantle and run with it farther, right? Because no. No founder takes this all the way to the finish line. It's without your team. Yeah. Right. And so it's tremendously important who you bring on, who, who do you entrust and who, who do you believe in, who believes in you and your vision to continue pushing this? Because this is not something that's solvable by, you know, three founders in a small office. We, we need a team to continue to push and develop and grow and innovate and come up with other great ideas, right? It's not only our great ideas anymore. And so it's kind of the next phase beyond initially, initially getting off the ground. Once you prove you have a thing that works, once you prove that you are a founder who, as you said, a founder problem fit and your solution kind of resonates and that you know that if other challenges come up, you're the right person to figure that out. That's all good. But then you have to also turn to your team and who do you bring on to keep forwarding that mission? You seem like a pretty involved craft craftsperson. You care about the details. How did you learn to let go? Give it to the next um, That is a very good challenge uh, or very good question. I think it's all about trust and you, know, you bring people on who you think are trustworthy, right? It's always growing a team is always challenging. It's excellent to turn to folks that look, you have them in your network to bring them on, but you can't always fill every job with everyone in your network. And so you then hope that you've built a culture and that you're attracting the right sort of talent and then you teach them and you teach them to, and then you're at a point where, oh, I know your idea may be slightly different than mine, but I seen you produce good ideas. And so I don't have to be involved with every decision. I don't have to be involved with every detail. 
we love to sweat the details, but I also love to give it to my team to sweat the details and to come back with awesome solutions. So you have to, you know, when it's time to roll up your sleeves and have that discussion. And you know, that if I'm off busy doing something else, that that the team is going to have your back. So that, but that's a personal growth objective, I would say, right? That's something that a person who is, who likes to sweat the details and post all those details has to learn to let go. Otherwise you cannot possibly personally grow and you can't possibly scale. It's always, it can't always be the one wizard, the one genius behind the tower who gives all the instruction. You have to, um, teach people your thinking and trust in that they're going to understand that and bring their own creative mind to bear and come up with wonderful solutions as well. And if you're really good at your job, you should know how to pick them, right? Like you should know how to evaluate talent. Really, I think that's like a good indicator, right? In theory, I don't think any of that's ever 100%. If anyone had 100%, you'd be super genius level. But yes, you should recognize the traits that you're looking for and you should make sure those are the right traits. And then it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if you find those folks and then those folks are looking for additional people. Like it just, a culture doesn't come out of thin air. A culture is the people, right? Culture is not something that five bullet points dictate, right? The, the five bullet points typically capture the essence of that culture. But I, the thing that I would say, one of the things I'm most proud about extend, never mind the product, never mind the business success, is the team that we've built here and the culture that we built together. And coming into the office and seeing that physical manifestation, talking to people on Zoom because we are quite hybrid, we're dispersed as well. Experiencing all of that, experiencing the goodness that people bring, the creativity, the excitement, the spark, the hard work. It, you know, at a certain point, the, the founders have to exude all of that. But now we're a big enough company where that's just in, that's in the air. And so then you also start to somewhat self-select for other people who want to be around that environment. And I, we have pretty solid, no jerks policy here. And I think we love everyone at this company and that just trickles down, right? You don't have to worry that you're going to hire someone bad because that's what everyone's looking for now. Everyone values that. JB Chikowsky, he's like probably one of the most quoted leaders on this show. He, so he's the global head of QuickBooks, designed for QuickBooks. And he says that culture is a patine, right? If you look at someone that has like a well-worn wallet, the patine's like the signs of wear, right? And, and have a usage. You know? And if you want to use like a UX term, it's like a desire line, right? Where it's showing how you like to use that object. And I think that really resonates with me because it's not about posters and bullet point and values. It's what are the signs of like, where, what, what's the patine in the culture of like how you do things and how you choose to run a company? It's certainly time-driven for sure out of that, right? It's not something that you just wave a wand and it, yeah. it appears. It certainly has to be intentional. It can form without intentionality, but if you want it to be a strong culture, you have to be mindful. It, just like any relationship, right? You have to be mindful of it. You have to put your effort into it, but it's certainly... It's the synonym of that is where, right? Like is where, and it's not where because it's patina implies that over time it's gotten better. It's right? more, it's, right. marinate, it's marinated. It's gotten valuable. Like that, the outside has influenced it to become better. And I think that's definitely true of culture, right? That has to, it, it is not something that is dictated. It's impossible to dictate it. You can demonstrate it, but you can't dictate it. Mm -hmm. so it's, but it's tremendously important going back to all of these things that we've been talking about. You have to be 
surrounded by the right people. Those people have to believe in similar things to what you believe. Obviously no one believes your carbon copy instead of beliefs, but there have to be some core beliefs that everyone holds to be true. There has to be some core desire of everyone learning to wanting to learn and better themselves, curiosity, wanting to push themselves, caring for our customers, right? Having that empathy and that empathy goes from our business development folks who are trying to sell to a bank, to our folks who are trying to ride along and explain to corporates why our product is good, to our customer success, to our designers, to our engineers, to our product folks across the board. You have to have that empathy. You have to keep wanting to learn because at a small startup, your job is what it is today. It's not necessarily what it's going to be tomorrow. Everyone keeps evolving. And I always say when we're interviewing to the wrong person, a startup is chaotic and not the right place because they don't know what they're going to be doing tomorrow, but to the right person is excited by getting to touch so many different things that are cliche of wearing different hats, really getting to learn different experiences, like for the right type of person, that is a dream world. And so it's about filling our team with those folks who are excited and passionate about all of those pieces. So one of the reasons why I rebranded the podcast from the way of product design to just the way of product, right? The, the actual like craft and discipline of product is I watched the config talk from Brian Chesky from Airbnb and how he talked about how he's like, he tried everything, all the best practices, the Silicon Valley product group, the squad model and like hiring PMs and stuff like that. And then he just chose to design his own business operating model, his own SOPs. And uh, they're doing pretty well as a business. And that, that taught me that I'm like, oh, there's no rules. It's like, you, like a business, how you want to run it and like how you want to operate it is totally, you could go complete like custom mode if you wanted to. And then at the end of it, he, he bookends his talk with, hey, I might not be like a designer in like the way that everyone else thinks of design, but I design businesses. And so the conclusion to me was, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this, that um, the, the discipline isn't the individual. Like people get hung up on like screen design, UI design as like the discipline is their identity, but it's just a discipline. There's other disciplines. And I wonder if like the natural progression into like leadership is like, just, you're just picking another discipline. You're still a designer, you're still an engineer. You're just designing engineering orgs at this point. You're just designing design orgs or you're designing the business. Like, that's a different discipline. You're still doing the job. Like your identity's not gone because you move up. You just chose a different well, And game. I think what I hear there is, yeah, how do you apply your creativity? How do you apply your empathetic mind? How do you apply your ability to observe things? How do you apply your ability to learn from things, your curiosity to want to keep learning? All those things, you can, you, you can apply those things in nearly any job, right? And so if you want to keep growing, you, it's a requirement that you would keep expanding your skill set, And it would be a requirement to say, yeah, I'm good at listening to client feedback. So I adjust this, the design this way when I'm doing the UX layout. That is very adjacent skills to I'm listening to a end user and I'm adjusting a product flow this way, or I'm listening to an employee or a team of employees and adjusting our process. Though they obviously, you, you learn a bunch of stuff that works and doesn't work. The, the longer you're in a, a set discipline, the more experience you can bring to bear. 
but I agree completely. I, th I think there are certain muscles that you flex that are very similar. And I keep coming back to scratching an inch that there are certain things that bring people enjoyment, right? Being creative, solving problems. You, you can do that in any discipline. It doesn't have to mean that you, if you're creative, you can only be doing visual layout and that's the only way to be a creative person. Yeah, like you don't have to be official title designer to be creative. And if you even look at what design thinking is, it's really just a repackaging of abductive reasoning. Just the ability to identify connections between unrelated things, make a deduction, like what you think the connection is. And and if you look at it that way, that's that's engineering thinking. That's basically just you are making abductions about how the world works or how, why a problem is the way it is. And then you're figuring out what vehicles you use to experiment. Well, well, I, th I think the key then, I think that you have to add to all of that, and it's not limited to design thinking or any of these other yeah. patterns, is the feedback loop. How do you presume that you are not the be all end all arbiter your your design your decision your thought process is the best handed down from above it, it the last answer you have to put it into that feedback loop you have to be ready to hear okay i put this into my user i put this into people and i found out i was wrong and you have to be humble to experience that and say yep i heard this is wrong this is not working this part is working right or it's not let's go with the iterative process again and just keep looping on it until it's working and I know here, when we talk about process at Extend, we're constantly iterating on process. So it's never done, right? And that's great. We can optimize our agile process. And we can say, we're going we're gonna to tweak some things the way, you know, our product owner is going to sit with design and sit with engineers, get feedback straight away. We're going to launch something quickly. And we can cross that off the list of saying, yep, we're now doing better than we were before. But it's never finished. It doesn't mean you still can't get more feedback, can't get more outside inputs that then impact the process further down the road. And so I think that's what the key thing is. You have to have your creativity. You have to come up with some interesting ideas. And then you have to actually test them. And you have to make sure they, they give your intended output and you have to be scientific, empathetic enough to be open-minded enough so that when they either are working or are not, like, oops, my assumptions were wrong. Let me tweak it. Either my assumptions were wrong, my solution was wrong, any of these sort of things. Let's go back and give it another shot. Let's tweak what we have. And so it's even more correct. A quote about humility that really helped me wrap my head around it, because I always thought humility was being the first one to crap on yourself in front of everybody. And then the reframe was that humility is just holding people in higher regard. Like you're holding the customer in higher regard in their opinions and their feedback. Do you feel like the tech industry has an entitlement problem with the success? Like they just feel entitled to be successful? I would say it's human nature when you've been successful to not bet for granted. So I don't know that if it's an entitlement problem other or it's a human problem that you've done good things, you do challenging work. You're smart. People tell you're smart. People tell you're successful. It's like, that makes sense. People tell it. I see myself. I think the important thing is to be intentional and remember that there's always improvement. And so I don't, I don't even say that has to be 
putting, I don't think that's putting yourself down. That's just saying there's more headroom. There's more I can go up. And, and I think that's true from who we are as people. It's true from our work. We can, we should all hold ourselves in very high expectations and say, yeah, I did this. Like having a high expectation doesn't mean you don't do a good job. It just means you recognize there's more to learn and grow that you could do it better next time, not resting on your laurels. And so to me, that is what I think about humility is that you don't have to broadcast it. Part of it is like, no, I'm going to do a good job and it's going to be self-evident by what I do doing a good job. And I'm going to be humble to know that I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to say wrong things. I can be right 90% of the time and wrong 10. That doesn't hurt me. And, it, and my goal is not 100% correct. My goal is because unattainable, right? My goal is to be continually improving your process, continually improving your designs, continually improving your engineering, right? And keep learning. But it's all about moving forward. It's not about that thing. The goalposts keep moving and that's a good thing. That's what keeps it interesting. Yeah, because you ideally want to just keep playing the game, right? We're in this because it's fun. I agree. And so, so it's, yeah. I'm just going to keep yeah. getting better at it. Yep. Yeah. It's, I mean, like the ethos that, like what I'm reverse engineering for this conversation is that there's no such <laughs> thing as done. Uh, there, there's no such thing as per perfection. There's only continuously shipping and iterating. There's, um, surround yourself with people that you'll enjoy working with, uh, because this, I mean, at the end of the day, business is just a game and like at with long enough time horizon, the business will be probably replaced or disrupted by another business. Like businesses atrophy over time. Just that's just the way things are. Everything's temporary. So if you're going to do something, pick a problem space that like you're actually excited about willing to be married to it for a long time, at least a decade. Just continuously improve and ship and that's pretty cool yeah and i would add the one thing also i think i try to surround myself with people who make me a better person whether that's pushing myself to think about things differently pushing myself to work harder pushing myself to be more empathetic you name it right i have pretty much zero interest in being the smartest or most someone in the room because then to that same thing or where do i have to go from there much prefer to be around people who make me think about things differently, make, make me think about different approaches, do something better than me. I'm like, oh, you're right. That's a goal. That's a target. Can I do things like that? And so that to me has to be the way that you succeed in all this. And it, it's true in business. It's true in personal life, right? Surround yourself with people who make you feel good. Keep pushing, make you a better person. I'd imagine working in the, in the industry you're working on, it's also looking for customers that are going to challenge your thinking as well. From like inception to the, to your company, to getting onto the sales circuit, to start road showing what you have. Can you w walk me through that process of what that looks like and how you started to get traction and you I mean, guess maybe what the time horizon was? Yeah. Sure. So not what it looks like, but what it looked like, I guess, I mean, it's from from the moment we yeah, decided well, that we were going to have a company and build a proof of concept and then find customers, is that sort of the journey you're describing? Yeah. Yeah. What would that look like? Uh, walk me through the story. Cause oh, yeah, it starts off in the three person conference room. How do you, yeah. Like how did you translate that into your initial like sales motions to start rolling this out? Yeah. 
Yep. So what's interesting is that we were founded by two people with a product background. Myself and the CEO both came from some product-minded things. Obviously, I came from a technical background and a design background. And our third partner is our COO and CMO. So not really a sales, a traditional salesperson in the mix. And but and found that's constantly part of your journey is how do you explain what you do to other folks so that they find it compelling. We could not go to just find a corporate who's going to use our product. We had to find a bank who's going to, you know, we were going to partner with and whose cards we were going to use to, to, to have a product. So we originally, I sketched together some fake screens that were like a click through prototype on a mobile device. And our CEO went to money 2020, which is a huge payments conference in Vegas every year. And he talked to folks he knew and folks he didn't know to say, here, we're thinking about this sort of thing. And I st we still have those screens there. Um, as you would hope, they are quite embarrassing to look at, <laughs> but we take them out every couple of years to laugh at ourselves. You, you also can't succeed if you can't laugh at yourself. And we eventually found a bank that was willing to say, hey, we have some APIs. Um, if you open your own account, you can plug into our APIs and you can give it a whirl, right? You're only messing with your money, so have at it. Right, your own credit card. And so we did that and we, I got to working with the person who now is our, our first hire, but he wasn't a full-time hire then. And we built together a mobile app first and we were only mobile at first. There's not even a website that you could do a web application you could do this through. And so we were an iOS app where you could send other people cards. And we showed that to other banks. We showed that to potential customers. We showed that to people we knew in the startup space or anyone who might be interested in helping us out. Scraped together a few people who had potentially already had an account at this bank, Silicon Valley Bank, who let us get started um, and continue to talk to investors because we recognized this was not something that we could fund out of our own pockets. And our, our first investor who agreed to join um, Point72 had, we sent them a card and we then we went to a meeting with them and they came back and said, we, we, were, we were at Home Depot and we bought some screws or something with this credit card. I'm like, it works. I'm like, yeah, we know we built it. We had confidence in that. Um, and then that just started, it starts to accelerate from there. And then you can start to build a team. You can bring out people who know sales better than anyone who know other things. And just continue talking, especially with banks, selling to banks, just continue those conversations, getting your name out there. Um, because it, it's been a long, our partnerships with these big banks take a very long time to close. And so it's just, Building those personal relationships, showing that we were trustworthy, showing that when we said we we're going to do something, we did it. Showing that our product did something better than the products they had already offering. Showing that we were thinking about the problem in a different way. And then it's just speaking to enough people that it started to become self-evident to the people who want to buy, who want to partner with you and go from there. But it certainly, in the beginning, there was a lot of relationship building with card networks because that's really where the source of our virtual cards are and letting them trust. Three guys in a conference room, a team of 10, however you name it, to give us access to these massively powerful APIs so that we can build our product. Uh, and so that, and then spend the time building a product based on those APIs that, you know, some of them are older, some are a little bit creakier. They're not purpose-built for this. How can we build, effectively what we built as a layer around all of that that, that enables both our product and other products we built on top of it. And so that journey continues today continue to sign more banks, continue to grow our product. But I would say the first beginning of it was an 18 to 24 month process of really feeling like, is this actually going to be a thing? 
So like 24 months to start to get the first sign-ons of banks. Sign-on of banks and finding end corporates you want to who want to sign on and use this, right? Because the bank then says to its corporates, hey, we've got this new thing. We've got this new product, this new feature on your card. Let's give it a shot. It's the way we make money uh, is the more credit card transaction volume goes through, we make a piece of that. So we just need people charging charging money on our virtual cards to have the bank pay us money because we've now enabled more people to use their cards than used before. Um, so, and then, you know, we originally thought that this was going to be a what's called a T&E type product, right? So imagine one of my employees doesn't have a credit card to make business for travel. I would give them a card. They could buy their airplane. They could buy their, go to a conference, right? They could buy their hotel, their conference, be all of that and not have to get reimbursed. That was kind of the initial vision. And then of course COVID hit and no one's leaving their house going to any conferences. And we discovered actually lots of businesses want the trackability and reconciliation that virtual cards offer. And so you would use this to manage their spend at their business amongst it, among the other things. And so it didn't have to be travel. And so again, you have to be open-minded and see this happening, looking carefully at the number. Oh, I see what's happening. I'm, I read the tea leaves. How can we continue to make a product that supports that type of use? How can we change our story so that when we're talking to banks, they understand where we're seeing success. And, and now today we know there are many billions of dollars of charge line that flow through our system. But it's, it all started from that first, it started from a first $10 charge at a coffee shop for the three of us to go to many billions. It's a, been an exciting journey for that. It almost didn't sound like sales or marketing. It was just socializing the idea for a couple of years. And a quote that helped me understand marketing a little bit better is that the market is a place you go to market. Like you actually physically, or I guess physically go to the Facebook page, right? But like you went to the conference and you weren't selling anything. You did technically had nothing to sell. You just had an idea and you just started socializing it and just kept like working the process of just getting your name out there. And that's literally like what going to market is. That is what marketing is. You're socializing, but you didn't wait until you had an actual like minimum viable commercializable product. You actually just had this prototype and you're like, okay, cool. Let's go find out if people. Well, yeah, yeah. Exactly. let's find out. Do people, are people interested in this? What resonates has to be, that's the design process right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if we slap something together in a few weeks, that, that's a waste of time if no one wants that, right? So how can we show things to people, get their feedback and then go from there? Yeah. And, and I think in, especially in B2B sales, marketing, product development, they are a straight continuum that there, there are pieces that can be from all of those disciplines, which is why you need to have people in all those disciplines who are creative, who are listening, who are empathetic, right? You can't only drop in the product developer or the designer when those discussions have already been going on for a month or two. Yeah, I think the team is really important because I think it, every decision you make in the product design is a branding exercise. Like, how is the customer going to feel about this when they see this? And so then that's going to, interface with marketing and then that's going to interface with engineering okay how do we actually execute this experience in a way that it's going to make them feel a certain way about the product danny this has been a really awesome interview i, I really admire your wisdom and the fact that you're able to just concisely put like the principles you learned along the way is there any loose ends to this conversation that you want to tie before we sign off 
Like anything that's been unsaid that you feel like needs to be said? No, I think it's truly been a really exciting conversation for me. It's always interesting to be introspective, retrospective about how did you get someplace? What are the lessons for going forward? Always happy to share that. The work with, that we're doing at Extend has been very inspirational to me. The team has been very inspirational. And so it's just been, it's been something that's really been an excellent journey. So I'm certainly happy to have been on it and to be on it and happy always to talk about it because it's fun to share that journey with the world. Danny, thanks again for coming on the show. You have a good one. You as well. Thank you so much. Hey, listener, thanks again for listening to The Way of Product. As we power down today's session on the fusion of creativity and technology, let's solidify the energy you've gotten from our dialogue today. If you've gleaned insights or strategies that could turbocharge your projects, I have a small but powerful ask. Swing by the platform where you're hearing this and leave a review. Think of it as your digital high five to us. It's a fuel that propels this content to more creative technologists like you, amplifying the impact of the shared knowledge. So until our next interview, keep pioneering and pushing the envelope. Thanks again for lending your ears and your imagination to our community. Catch you on the next download. Is everyone gone yet? Because this next offer is for you. And this is because you listened all the way to the end of this episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Alchemy. Name you might not be familiar with yet, but one you'll definitely want to remember. I don't know about you, but most meetings are terrible. Long circular discussions, weeks with no progress. I was tired of that. Tired of good energy getting sucked out of potentially explosive creative sessions. So I finally decided to do something about it. That's why I started Alchemy. Think of Alchemy as a special ops for team collaboration. We're the ones you call for remote or on-site workshops where you need to get your product team aligned and moving without the usual drag. No more endless circles or feeling like you're herding cats. I've been there. I've been stuck in the muck of misalignment, watching the clock while creativity just fizzles out. That's not how breakthroughs happen. Alchemy workshops are built differently. Think of it as a turbo boost for your team's productivity. So here's what you do. Visit wayofproduct.com forward slash workshops. And let's start turning those meeting groans into high fives. All right. Thanks for listening to the full episode. And remember with Alchemy, it's not just a meeting, it's a turning point. Talk to you soon.